0: today. It's Another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 7th, 2019. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at MetsamorizedOnline.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Hope everybody's doing well on this Sunday evening, and special guests joining us tonight Wayne Coffey, author of the book, They Said It Couldn't Be Done, the 69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history will be joining me uh, in this season where uh, we're celebrating throughout the year the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Mets. Last week we had our Chamsky, You had the player's point of view. Now you get the author who dived into this season, and Wayne has done a, a, a number of interesting works uh, throughout his career. He did the R.A. Dickey book a few years ago. He wrote a book many years ago about the 1980 USA hockey team. That, that's a good one. And he'll be joining me in just a little bit as we take a, a trip back in time and look back at the 1969 Mets in a different way than we did maybe just a week ago. And it'll, there'll be more of this throughout the season. Not every week, but th- we'll do more of this as... We will do our part to celebrate in the 50th anniversary of that historic team. Now, let's uh, turn forward to 2019. And I always say that you have to look at these baseball seasons into smaller bits. You can't just get too caught up in one game or one week. Or if you really look at the whole season, it could be a little overwhelming with 162 games and what is it, 183 or somewhat days But if you really want to boil the season down, you have 16 10-game segments. That's 160 games. Then you throw a couple of the variable two games. That's probably the ones you do at the beginning of the year. You could throw those as the the two extra. And right now the Mets have nine or have a sample size of nine of the first 10 games of that first 10-game sample. So... Where are we at, and and how do I look at this team? And I'm very much a proponent of not getting too high, not getting too low, and I've been saying over the last couple of years that this is a team that I thought was very good, competitive, had a chance to make a wild card, maybe win a division, and I've been wrong on all parts in the last couple of seasons. Um, but I went into this season thinking that this team – was solid. I thought the offense would be enough to score some runs. I always have liked the pitching. Like I've said, the pitching is the reason why I didn't want them to tear this thing down. I thought the bullpen was better. I was a little concerned about it being short. And then, of course, the depth, I thought, in general, was going to serve them well. And a lot of that has come true. Now, I don't think the Mets at 6-3. and three, And I know that a little disappointment this weekend as they lost 2 out of 3 to the Nationals at home. It was funny going into the Saturday afternoon contest. Uh, There was all this talk because the Mets were shut out on opening day. And we really never got into it during the offseason. But it was about City Field and the lack of exit velocity, the lack of offense. And then the two teams combined for 11 runs on Saturday, 21 runs today on Sunday. So that kind of throws that whole conversation out of whack. But, you know, certainly... I think uh, Citi Field is not an offensive ballpark, but both the Mets and the Nationals, Mets walking the Nationals around the ballpark, that'll help give up 12 runs. For the Mets, it seems like they've rediscovered some of the power that has been missing in recent years when they play at home. Now, what do I think of this club? Well, offensively, I think they're actually pretty solid, and when it comes to Pete Alonzo, who's been the story, I'm not going to be any different about Pete Alonzo than I would have been about any ball player, whether that goes back to David Wright in 2004 and 2005 or Aaron Judge just a couple of years ago. I got to see these guys have their first slump. I got to see these guys go around the league a second time. I don't anoint players after 30, 40 at-bats. Uh, it's the same thing with Jeff McNeil. Jeff McNeil's falling into that category this year as well. With that said, there's a lot that you have to like about Pete Alonso. Uh, he's up there, he has a plan, he seems to have very solid plate discipline, uh, he hits the ball hard, that's going to uh, uh, you know, serve him very well in that ball finding gaps and finding its way over the wall, and on Saturday, that home run that brought the Mets to within a run, I mean, he's talking about that home run not even, uh, that ball not even being hit that great, and if you look at the replay, it really wasn't, it was more towards the end of the bat, so that's really exciting, but I think this offense has been led by Alonso, and, I mean, everybody's been pretty good. Ramos has been good to start the year. Uh, You know, Conforto has played well. McNeil in his uh, times there. Dom Smith has contributed uh, in his own way. Keon Broxton has had a big hit now and joined the parade. And even with that, you know, you haven't had everybody hitting on all cylinders. You haven't had a very good Robinson Cano, uh, despite the game-tying home run. Ahmed Rosario's been off to a slow start. Brandon Nimmo has been persona non grata. He's been awful. And, uh, you know, so what will happen when this offense really starts to click, it might be actually pretty scary. But a good lineup is always going to have three or four guys hot at one time. And if you only have three or four good hitters, that becomes a problem. I legitimately think the Mets have about seven solid hitters. I think you got Alonzo, Ramos, Cano. uh, You know, J.D. Davis has been uh, an interesting uh, find here. Uh, you know Conforto McNeil and uh, and I think eventually you'll see um, uh, uh, you know uh, some kind of combination of of Broxton and Juan Lagares do what they need to do to justify their defense in center field. So I think there's a lot to be excited about about the lineup. Now as far as the rotation, uh, I don't I don't see how you could worry about any of these guys. Yes, Wheeler is the guy that he had a good second half, but. The sample size indicates that what you saw, the inconsistencies out of Wheeler, some of the laboring, that's more of the Zach Wheeler we've known over the course of his Mets career. Uh, I saw some tweets from the media, well, do the Mets have enough pitching past the Grom to compete? That's just silly. Syndergaard's a really good pitcher. Even if he's not the Syndergaard of 2016 or the Syndergaard you want him to be, uh, that doesn't mean he's not going to be a very solid number two pitcher at the very worst. Uh, even if he may frustrate you sometimes, uh, I I still think Mats and he's and he's and he's shown that in his first two starts is very solid number three or four. I don't know why everybody's down on him. And yeah, Vargas wasn't impressive, uh, but uh, he'll navigate through. I think enough uh, teams to give you six innings, three runs. I think those are the games where they become bullpen games, and I think Seth Lugo and Robert Goodzelman are almost going to be. The uh, the middle innings uh, starter in those cases, and I know that that'll put some stretch stress on the bullpen. But you know that's where some of the conversation about Dallas Keuchel comes into play. And uh, look, if he in the report today from Ken Rosenthal was that he's looking for a one year seventeen million dollars at least this year if he wants to play on a one year deal because that's the qualifying offer that he would lose or he would have gotten if he had taken it from the Astros, that's pretty reasonable. And I think as the year goes on, and I don't think you have to wait. I know there's a draft pick at stake if you wait a little bit, but I think most teams are going to sit around and wait to see how their rotations uh, uh, transpire until that date where they won't lose the draft pick. I don't like waiting too long, you know, six weeks or so, seven weeks, maybe even eight weeks. If you look at it, we're still early April. That's a long time, and that's a lot of starts. You know, that's six or seven or eight starts a pitcher can make, and that could uh, could sink a team, especially in a division that very well may be pretty tight. So, uh, I'm not worried about the rotation. I know Wheeler was bad today. Uh, let's, let's let them. You know, other than Wheeler, the and, and I haven't been crazy, but Syndergaard starts, and I'll throw Vargas to the side for a minute. The, the starters have been really good, and Degrom, you're seeing him at a level which very few pitchers. Have achieved, and I don't think at this point this is an outlier. I think this is who he is. Maybe he won't be fourteen strikeout great every night, but he wasn't great opening day, and he and he managed to shut the Nats down. Got a little lucky at times, but that's what great pitchers do—they shut teams down and they get lucky because even when you get a, a hard hit ball, for whatever reason, it doesn't find uh, it doesn't find grass; it finds a glove. Now the bullpen's a different situation because that's been probably the most disappointing part of the first nine games going on, ten games uh, this week. The bullpen, I think, it, it falls into a couple of categories here. First, I, I've been very disappointed with how Mickey Calloway has managed the pen. And this was a criticism I had of Terry Collins over the course of his entire tenure. Now, the reason why I'm not going crazy, and I know this is going to drive some of you nuts in the Twitterverse that listen to the program, is because I do think Mickey's also trying to figure out the nuances of these pitchers. What I mean by that is, you know, who pitches well ahead, behind? uh, Can they come out for a second inning? On that note, most of them have shown they can. I think that's a familiar problem. I think that's a guy that you don't necessarily want to come and and come into a game, get up, get in, get down, get back in. That's a tough situation for a lot of these guys today. You need to be a special pitcher for that. Now, I think Gazelman and Lugo, since they were starters, should be able to do it. And I know Lugo looked good today, but has struggled mostly throughout First couple of uh, you know first week and a half or so, and and it seems like it's it's pitch utilization from what it sounds like uh, on why he struggled, and and maybe they figured that out. But uh, other than that, you know, I don't know if Edwin Diaz really is that kind of guy. I don't think Familia, and you saw him struggle a lot on Saturday doing that. Uh, Justin Wilson, uh, forget about. It. I mean, I thought the game where they had to bring Edwin Diaz, uh, the the Grom game where they were up six nothing, you know, bringing Avion in and. Getting the three outs and then sitting them down and bringing them back up, I, I just thought that was a terrible move. And and those are the kind of things that happen a lot of the times when a manager pitches or manages to stay away from the closer. They inevitably have to get their closer. They'll bring in a really bad pitcher. Oh, let me bring this guy in. I don't want to waste my arms. And then you look up at six one, six two, six three, and then you got to get the guy warmed up anyway. Your your closer. You didn't really save anything. Uh, I thought bringing leaving Avion in for the second day, I think that pretty much was why that happened. Uh, you, you know I didn't think that was a good matchup and, and I think Mickey's looking through that and I, I will say this if this continues and we're going into late April, May and, and he's repeating the same mistakes, then that's where I will criticize Mickey and that's where I'll get probably pretty angry. That was the always the issue I felt with Collins and worth and they repeated the same mistakes not only within a season, season after season after season and uh it was frustrating it was like putting hansel robles in high leverage situations that's not a guy that can handle that and they continue to do that at various points and 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 so on and so forth so uh do i have concerns about the pen leading up to uh, diaz yeah i do I do. Uh, I have a lot of concerns about it because, number one, guys like Wilson and even Familia, I think their walk rates are really high. I think Lefty's hit Familia really well at this point in his career. Uh, I think they could use another arm. I know everybody's talking about Craig Kimbrell. But, uh, I, I, look, if, if, same thing with Keichel. If Kimbrell wants to sign, on, and I said this on an earlier podcast, if K- Kimbrell wants to sign on a one-year deal at a reasonable rate, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, that's a risk that's just money. Uh, I have to look at the draft pick compensation situation. I would not really be willing at this point to give a, a, a pick up for for Kimbrel for Keuchel. It's a little bit different, I guess. On a one year deal, that's 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 harder to do. But look, you're here to win uh, a championship. You're here to get into the playoffs. Uh, the the picks will you know will be there. And if you're a, a good talent evaluator, you'll find good players outside of the second round, which is the pick that you would lose or the sandwich pick between the first and the second round. So uh, a little bit concerned there with the bullpen. Some of that has been utilization by Mickey, uh, the up, the down, the second inning. You know, some of that is the concerns I had going in. You know, Justin Wilson, a guy that walks a lot of guys. What happened? His walk yesterday in his, uh, in, in his inning, That that's what cost the Mets uh, one run. You know, that, it starts with a two-out walk. Uh, Familia came in, got out of the inning, but then you sit him down, you get him back up. He was not quite as sharp. Uh, and then you worry about overusing Diaz because in games where you're up 6-1 or 6 nothing or four runs and you have to bring Diaz in, those are games that you rather not use him. And uh, you want to really use him for those games where it's a one-run game and, and you know you want to nail it down or you're in a, at home in a tie game and you want to get to the bottom of the inning and things like that. So anyway, so uh, I'm not ready to swing wildly one way or the other on any of this. Uh, Overall, I think the team is what we thought they were. You know, I think their offense is a little bit more diversified. That's positive. The starting pitching is really good, and the bullpen, I think, has been a disappointment. Uh, Another interesting note about JD Davis, who has played really well uh, with Lowry being out, with Frazier being out, is, uh, you know, I don't know if I see a pathway to Davis staying on the roster when Frazier comes back. And I think he'll be back within a week to 10 days here. And, um, you know, Guillerme is the only other. Now, Frazier will be back before Lowry. So, when you put Frazier back on the roster, if you send Guillerme down, who's your backup shortstop? Is it Frazier? Probably not. Uh, it's certainly not going to be JD Davis. You have to have somebody for Rosario. You, you don't even know if you can, you know, you can't even switch him out of the game at that point if you don't have a backup shortstop. That's a really interesting question because. J.D. Davis is, uh, you know, he's shown power. He's shown good uh, plate discipline. Not the greatest defensively. He's made some bonehead moves, but I don't think he's a a total wreck there. You know, can McNeil be a shortstop in a pinch? Uh, If Rosario's not available, gets hurt, needs a day off, uh, comes out of the game? I don't know, but I'm looking up and down here, and I I think J.D. Davis, when Frazier comes back, will be ticketed to Syracuse. And that'll be interesting because if Frazier struggles especially because Davis has had some big hits in the first 10 days of the season. How will that sit with the fans and how much of a leash will the Mets have with a veteran like Frazier, who's on the last year of his deal and uh, is a good clubhouse guy. Good veteran has pop in his bat, I think is is much better defensively than what they have now in JD Davis at, at third, but and a hedge at first, if, if Alonzo goes into a slump or, or Davis turns into a pumpkin, uh, Dominic Smith turns into a pumpkin, but, uh, I, I that'd be interesting how that plays out, and I think that's very likely to happen. If uh, you know when, if and when Frazier comes back, and Frazier will be back sooner rather than later. So, a lot to get to. Let's take a quick break. Uh, when we return, we're gonna go back in the time machine, the 1969 season. Wayne Coffey is gonna be joining me. They said it couldn't be done. The '69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history. Wayne Coffey about his uh, latest work, New York Times best-selling author. Wayne Coffey will be joining us right after this.
2: The 2-1 pitch. There's a fly ball hit out to the left waiting is Jones, the Mets of the world champion. Gary Kuzman being mobbed. Look at this scene. Nearly tore this ballpark. Apart when the Mets clinched their division pennant against the Cardinals, here's the Met locker room. The Mets had five runs, seven hits, no errors. The Orioles three runs, five hits, two errors. Sport Magazine has declared Don Clendenon as the outstanding player of the series, and he wins himself a new dog. And it was a come-from-behind victory for the Mets today. They were trailing three nothing. The celebration of the new world champions of baseball, the New York Mets, the final score. New York, five runs, seven hits, and no errors. Baltimore, three runs, five hits, and two errors. We're back, and joining
0: me, Wayne Coffey, New York Times bestselling author, storyteller, and believer in the power of helping and hoping. That's what you get from his Twitter page at WR underscore coffee, com. And uh, Wayne is no stranger to Mets fans. It wasn't too long ago that he was uh, co-authoring a book with Ari Dickey. Now he goes back in time with the 69 Mets. Wayne, pleasure to have you on. opening. Thanks with for having me on, Mike. Home- no problem. Home opener for the Mets here. And, uh, this is the season celebrating 1969, and, and your book dives into it. And you've done a number of uh, works over the years. You, you know, the, I remember the 1980 U.S. hockey team work, and I always like to ask someone uh, like you who has done a very meticulous job of, of going through the history of a sport or, or working with an individual uh, player or, or situation – did you learn something that you didn't know or something that really stood out to you before you took this project on that when you came out of it, you're like, you know, that's something that I never would have expected or something new hard when you're talking about the 69 med to have been talked about for many years, but perhaps you came across something that, you know, you didn't know. And then you, you learned a little bit about.
3: It's a great question, Mike. I, I have to say, and part of the the, the joys for me of, of being on this journey writing this book is that there was something new and fascinating that I came across almost every day. Now that doesn't mean that every single one of them rose to the level of, of, of a bombshell, but, but there were just fascinating things that I, that I came across in talking to people. I mean, some of them were, you know, almost in the met minutia realm. Like for example, I learned that, um, when Tommy Agee made those uh, epic catches in Game 3 of the World Series in 69, he did it with someone else's glove. Uh, A glove that was the the model glove was Johnny Callison, who was a right fielder for the Philadelphia Phillies. So, uh, you would think that, you know, uh, a terrific major leaguer and, and star center fielder like Tommy Agee might, you know, have his own glove, but he liked Johnny Callison, the Johnny Callison model better, so he used it. And uh, so, I mean, there were little things like that, um, but there were also, there were really things, I think for me, Mike, the most powerful parts of this were learning about people's journeys to get to this point in their lives and in their young lives in the case of these uh 69 Mets. They were the youngest team in baseball. Um, and I, I'll give you w- just one example. It, um, I went to see Cleon Jones in um, you know, he's often described as being from Mobile, Alabama. Technically, he's from a, a very small town just up the Mobile River from Mobile, called Plateau. But the people who live in that community, know it as Africa Town. And where Cleon Jones was born, raised, and still lives is a place where the last slave ship ever to come to the United States came in eighteen sixty. Front and center in the community movement to preserve the history of Africa Town, to open up a museum, a welcome center, and he works tirelessly at, at this so, I mean, I, I knew Cleon Jones going into this project as the Mets' best hitter, the guy who hit 340 and almost won a batting championship. I know him as the guy who caught the last out, but I didn't know anything about, uh, about Africatown and, and really where he was from.
0: And that's one of the things about this book, that if the, uh, the reader picks it up, that you're not just going game-by-game about the Mets. You're trying to give it in context of the backdrop of the city uh, you lead into, how this team was born. It's not just game-by-game here. You're really trying to put together a story and give the reader some context behind the time.
3: Yeah, you know, it's for for those of us who are old enough, and I am a member of that club, to remember 1969, and I, I in fact was at the game game five when they clinched with the, my grandfather and um I was one of the uh the trespassers who stormed onto the field and got my little uh, swatch of shea sod so um but it it was such a crazy tumultuous time in the United States then there was um, in fact, the day uh, the day of Game Four of the World Series, which when Tom Seaver won his the one and only World Series game of his Hall of Fame career, uh, there was the biggest anti-war protest in American history against the Vietnam War. And a little earlier that year, uh, there was Woodstock. And before that, there was the moon landing. And it just seemed that every every day almost brought some new kind of um, huge news or upheaval. Um, and and really, baseball itself, what's interesting to me, Mike, is that people forget, but um, baseball was undergoing a great transformation, probably more than it ever had in its history in 1969. For the first time, there was divisional play. Uh, they also, after the so-called year of the pitcher in 1968, they they, um, they lowered the mound. They expanded the strike zone. They had their initial spring training uh, experiment with what came to be known as a designated hitter. So all of this, and plus they added four teams. So there was um, sweeping change throughout baseball, and attendance was down, And people were concerned after the pitchers had dominated so uh, dramatically in '68 that um, they needed something to liven up the game. And then along came Gil Hodges, New York Mets, who had been spent basically their entire existence in last place, had lost 737 games in their first seven years, and no one really saw this coming.
0: And and I know that everybody talks about it being the Miracle Mets, and I understand nobody uh, saw it coming, but if you look at the back-end stats, the things that play into the strength of a team, just run differential. I mean, it's a lot closer with the Cubs in the final standings, but this is a team that, that profiles as over 90 wins. Uh, they were a good team in 70-71. Uh, do you think sometimes as you – you know, dived into this, that maybe they weren't given as much of their due. It's not like this was a band of the bad news bears here. I mean, there's a Hall of Famer and Seaver. I mean, Kuzman, maybe they didn't know it at that time. Very solid big league pitcher. Uh, guys coming out of the bullpen like McGraw and Ron Taylor and, and Nolan Ryan. And, and the offense wasn't anything special, but there are guys that got on base, that walked more than they struck out. Um, they were component players, and maybe that – Ties into Gil Hodges, who I'm sure you'll get into, and his impact and knowing how to get guys into the right situation. But there was a lot of solid ball players and solid veteran ball players who knew their role and and they were able to bring it all together. So sometimes you wonder if they're calling the Miracle Mets underrates them a little bit.
3: You know, it it's a it's a valid point in in the sense that they 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 had a tremendous young pitching staff, no doubt, and we all know what that means. They were also in. Really n- dynamic um, up the middle, with um, defensively with Jerry Grody behind the plate, Harrelson at short, and Ag in center. So those are two um, two real key elements there. But I have to say, when you really study the the offensive numbers of this team, uh, they were pretty much in the bottom in the bottom of the National League in almost every category on, on base percentage, uh, batting average. They didn't score a whole lot more runs than the 62 Mets did. Um, the infield batting averages of Gil Podges's platoons were, I mean, you know, 232, 248, 252. Uh, it's it just they were in a borderline anemic. And, um, in fact, there was. An, I talked to Gil Hodges Jr. in the course of doing my research, and he told me a story about being in in his father's office before the World Series started down in um, Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. So um, Gil Sr. is at his desk, and Gil Jr. is sitting there with him, and he's studying the stats of the two teams, the Orioles and the Mets, and he looked at the. He looked at the Orioles and Frank Robinson and Brooks Robinson and Boog Powell and Paul Blair, who was emerging as a great star, Don Buford, one of the best leadoff men uh, around. Um, And he just looked up and down and then looked at the Orioles' pitchers, and he just said, hey, Dad, can I ask you a question? And he said, sure. And Gil Jr. said, how are you even on the field with these guys? And (laughs) Gil Sr. got up and closed his office door and he said to his son, "I don't want to ever hear you say that again, because there's a room full of people out there who believe they can do this, and that's the most important thing of all."
0: That's a that's a funny story, and and in a day and age, Wayne, where managers are being de-emphasized, and you know, there's all this talk about, you know, you're just filling out the lineup card. You have the front office involved. No matter who you talk to, whether it be those who cover the team, a guy like you who uh, uh, wrote this book, or uh, the players themselves, they all talk about Gil Hodges and the impact. Um, you know, Talk about that, because I know it's been, talk- it's been said before, but I think during this celebration of 1969, I think that's going to be a theme. I know a lot of people are going to hope that part of that will help Gil get into the Hall of Fame later this year, uh, whether it be a combination between player-manager or if they just feel his playing career merits it. Talk about Gil Hodges, because there's two parts of that, how he built this franchise into a champion and his untimely death leading to their early demise. And, and I think that in today's day and age where the manager is being deemphasized, that wasn't the case with Gil Hodges and, and the Mets.
3: No, not not remotely, uh, Mike. And you, you really bring up one of the central themes of the whole book, and that is that this never would have happened in 69 without Gil Hodges as manager every single player I spoke to told me that and and his genius he was a very smart guy and a great baseball man and was always thinking innings and innings ahead and as much as the players marveled at that they more marveled at his gift for for making everyone feel like a vital cog in the machine he he gave every single player ownership he defined their roles he gave them plenty of notice when he was going to use them, and he, and he and he believed in them. I mean, I remember Al Weiss telling me when you know, he, I mean, this guy hit the home run to tie tie game five after the Mets fell behind in that game. You know, one of the biggest home runs in Met history, and here's a guy who is you know known as the Mighty Might. who you know he had, I believe, at that point he had six home runs in his major league career, which had been going on for some time and he hits a ball over the left center field wall at Shea. And he had one of the great quotes of the season, by the way, where he had hit a homer in Wrigley, and uh, someone said, the reporters descended on him after, and he said, "Um, don't call me a home run hitter, I'm not even a hitter. And so here's Al Weiss um, hitting that, and he said "Most, most managers honestly would have pinch hit for me in that in that uh, in that spot, and Gill just he he gave me a sense of having more belief in me than anyone I ever played for and it just you know it made me want to up my game and do everything I could to basically thank him for the opportunity and and so many players who were kind of the the role players on that team the j c martins the Duffy Dyers uh Wayne Garrett was half of the uh third base platoon with Ed Charles um one after another these guys just said that he his his handling of them as ball players and as young men was just superior in every way and, I, and on the Hall to... of Fame front, Mike, I mean, I will, yep. I will tell you, I am of those who believe that it's just a gross injustice um, that he. And I think Gil Hodges deserved to be in as a player. He, he, people forget, but in his in his Dodger glory days, he was not only a, a just an exemplary defensive first baseman, but he retired with three hundred and seventy. Home runs—the most of any right-handed batter in National League history at that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's. It'll be. I think this celebration and there'll be a lot of talk of Gill may may help him a little bit in a time where the Hall of Fame is more complicated than ever. I have Wayne Coffey with me, author of the book. They said it couldn't be done. The '69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history. Wayne, one of the other parts of a championship season is that point in time when a team starts to play at another level or they feel they have it, you know, in 2015, just a few years ago, after the Cespedes trade, you started to feel that that Mets team was different in 86. It came out early. They swept the Cardinals, you know, in 2000, you know, maybe it was the subway series in early summer or, you know, the 10 run inning against the Braves, you have the 2006 Mets who had their moments, any Mets team or any championship team starts to take it to the next level. And you feel it as a reporter. You, the team feels it. The fans feel it. When did this happen in '69? And you know, maybe it happened not necessarily in August. That it happened earlier, even though they were, you know, nine or you know, ten games out in, in late in the season.
3: The, the guys would tell you. In fact, Ed Cranepool and I were talking about this just the other night. He they would tell you that they there were two really key moments where they just felt like you know this is this is different this team is capable of something special one is when they went on an 11 game winning streak in um in May and maybe it spilled into early June as well uh against the west coast teams who traditionally for the Mets whole existence just hammered them just the Dodgers and Giants just used to beat up on the Mets and and the Mets won 11 in a row, and I mean, lo and behold, I mean, they were they were looking they were looking pretty darn good, and then um, they they fell back a little bit, but then they started playing really good baseball again and, and getting within shouting distance of the Cubs, who were just who went were off to a torrid start, were considered the prohibitive favorite, and the Cubs came into uh, Shea Stadium. On July seventh, eighth, and ninth, just a little bit before the all star break uh, with um, I believe it was about a five game lead at that point. might have been six, but in the in the first game, the Cubs had their ace on the mound, Ferguson Jenkins, and the Mets scored three in the bottom of the ninth to beat Ferguson Jenkins, and then the next night was one of the most Iconic games in Mets history, Tom Seaver's so-called imperfect game when he went eight and a third perfect innings. And Howie Rose, the great uh, Mets radio broadcaster, called called that night the night the Mets were bar mitzvahed. And, um, you know, in a sense, I think it was because the place had – there were 59,000 fans in the place that night in a, in a ballpark that held three or 4,000 people less – and, um, and it was just, it was a magical night. So the Mets won two of three. They, uh, but then in all, they fell back. And then, so by August 13th, they were 10 behind. And it looked like it was over. There were a lot of, even the most optimistic Mets fans said, you know, it's been a great ride, but I think the Cubs are just too strong. And from that point on, Mike, the Mets finished the year 38 and 11. And the oh, Cubs and went into who, a free fall. And Coo- Siever and Kuzmen won combined and won 18 of their last 19 decisions. I you mean, know the they amazing
0: were, part. Yeah, the amazing part is that this wasn't against slouch competition. The Cardinals were good. The Pirates were good as well. Uh You yep. know the Cubs had that great team. You know you mentioned those uh, West Coast teams. I mean, the, those were still. I mean. It's only been the last few years where that gap between the Brooklyn-New York Giants fans when you used to go to Shea Stadium and there'd be tons of them when those teams were in down. That's kind of faded away as time goes on. Back then, you know, it might not even been like a home game for the Mets in some of those situations. Still had tons of fans of those teams. That's, I think, a good point. They played well, but you look up and down the league, and I'm wondering if you took that away from your research. This was, uh, this was a top-heavy league. There wasn't anybody tanking, to use a modern-day word. No, I mean, there
3: were some expansion to the Padres, and the um, and the Expos were expansion teams. They were not strong clubs at all. Um, and the Astros, who actually were the team the Mets had the most trouble with of, of anyone that year, uh, they weren't very good. But they absolutely, Mets played just lights out over the last six or seven weeks of the season. And and, and they won just in, in the most – um, almost mind-numbing of fashions. There's the, the famous game that most Mets fans will remember, where Steve Carlton set the all-time strikeout record of 19 at the time, and lost to the Mets because Ron Swoboda, who struck out, was two of the. He struck out twice. He also uh, hit two two-run homers. And the Mets won 4-3. There was another game not long after that where they won. Both ends of a doubleheader against the Pirates, one nothing and one nothing, and both runs were driven in by the pitchers, Don Cardwell and Kuzman. The only time that's ever happened in baseball history. And Phil Regan of the Cubs told me we we saw those scores in uh, in Pittsburgh, and we just said, "What on earth is going on?" And what was going on is the Mets were just Unconscious, and the Cubs were in free fall. Uh, and by by December, by September, they could, you know, they barely, you know, get themselves dressed and on the field. They were, they just played abysmally at the end of the year.
0: And the one series everybody talked about beating the Cubs, and obviously this World Series against Baltimore, but that Atlanta series. Uh, overlooked a lot seesaw series not your typical 1969 Mets games offensive looks almost the box scores look like 1999 box scores with the offense and you look at that Braves lineup Felix Mion was uh, at the top of the order you had Hank Aaron uh, Orlando Cepeda I know later in his career of course uh, uh, Phil Negro is a, a pitcher on that team obviously New Yorkers will remember him from the Yankee years many years later uh that's a tough team and those were seesaw games and n- even though they swept the the Braves not an easy series. I don't know what you took away from your interviews and conversations but that was a scarier series than uh you know I think that we remember now post uh, post 1969.
3: Yeah, no, that it it was it was a crazy series and it what was what was really un- striking about it Mike was that Everyone said, "Well, all the you know the Mets can pitch, but they can't hit." And um, and meanwhile, in the the first two games in Atlanta, the Mets scored 20 runs, and and neither Seaver or Kuzman really had it. And um, so the Mets, uh, you know, they were on fire. Sh- Art Shamsky hit you know whatever he hit something like 600 in that series, and they were the Mets' batting averages were uh, were crazy, and they they really slugged their way to victory in those first two games. And then in the third game, um, the Braves went out to an early lead. Gary Gentry was starting and, and Gil Hodges. And here's, here's an example of just what he was a, a tremendous handler of pitchers. and just a, a very, he actually started out as a catcher. So he just had a really good feel for, for pitching and when guys had it and when they didn't. And, uh, Gary Gentry had gotten hit hard in the first um, in the first couple of innings. Uh, Aaron Henry Aaron hit a home run early on. I mean Aaron was torrid that whole that whole series. But it um, Gentry pitched. Uh, he gave up a, a couple of runs in the first few uh, in the first few innings. And in the in the third inning, there were a couple of guys on, and uh, Rico Cardi one of the best uh, best hitters in baseball just hit a um hit a missile down the left field line that just hooked foul so the score is 2 nothing it's the top of the 3rd there's 2 on and no one out and Hodges comes out and takes Gentry out of the game and Gentry was not a happy guy um I mean he's down tuned it's the, it's the top of the 3rd it's He's only down two runs. Yeah, sure, the guy hit a rocket, but, and, you know, later, you know, he had a look on his face like, you're going to take me out after a hard foul ball? And, yes, that's exactly what Gil Hodges was doing because he didn't like what he saw, and he knew he needed a strikeout. So in comes Nolan Ryan, and Nolan Ryan ends up pitching the rest of that ball game. And shutting shutting the Braves down almost completely. It was a seven-inning relief outing. We don't see those anymore. <laughs> but he no. was he was completely dominant, and it was really probably one of the first glimpses of what what Nolan Ryan could be. And he was already at 21 years old, probably the hardest thrower in baseball. Didn't really know where the ball was going, but it was uh, it was just a, a very a bold managerial move by Gil Hodges, and and it worked brilliantly.
0: As uh, And I have Wayne Coffey with me, author of the book. They said it couldn't be done. A lot of 1969 talk this year, 50th anniversary. Uh, Wayne, the ensuing years, we know the death of Gil Hodges had a big impact on the team going in a, a negative direction. But 1970, 1971, we know that repeating is hard. We just talked about some of the the challenges with the the great teams, I mean the Pirates and and the Cardinals and the Cubs and and obviously the Orioles would come back the next year and win the championship that they felt was so rightfully theirs. Uh did any of the players you talked to talk about the ensuing years? Was it hard to live up to the miracle of 69? Was it you know because it's never the same uh after you have such a perfect season in so many ways? Did you get – and I know it's not the focus of the book, but did you take anything away from post-1969 and the challenges those guys had in, in trying to repeat and maybe live up to expectations?
3: Well, you know, I, I do think it is always hard when you're – you know, the cliche is that when you're – it's much harder uh, to be the hunted than the hunter. And and the Mets, you know, in, in 70, they had um, – you know, they had a pretty respectable year. Uh they won eighty eight um well they won eighty three games. I mean it weren't you know, they they dipped certainly. Um and but I I I one hundred percent agree that the the uh the tragic death of Gil Hodges at age forty seven, which happened on Easter Sunday, nineteen seventy two, uh, was was um not only a, a a terrible loss for his family for all of New York baseball but it did send the, the Mets organization reeling for uh for some time afterward of course they they uh, Yogi Berra took them to the to the World Series in Oakland that you know most Mets fans feel they still should have should have won but um it really kind of in some ways precipitated the you know the dark the dark years of the, of the seventies. And I think there's every, every chance that that, that would not have happened if Gil Hodges had, um, had still been, um, had still been at the helm. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to explain why, you know, especially with the, with the talent that they had, um, from a pitching standpoint, um, why they would, why they would drop. I mean, Seaver was, um, Seaver was still really good in 1970, though he he dropped from 25 wins to 18. Kuzmin was down a little bit. Um, Gentry had uh, had some arm troubles, uh, and it just you know it just they sort of came back to earth, I guess. But it's um, yeah, it when you when you think about it, the, there was I remember thinking 1969. God, this team is so young; they're going to be going to be world beaters for a long time and uh it just uh it really makes you appreciate what uh the magic of what they pulled off in 69 that much that much more you know the the other thing i think that I'm, one of my takeaways just in diving into this the way i have mike is that just how completely different the baseball was then there was there was a game the um the Mets played in, um, in August against the Giants against the great Juan Marichal. Marichal shut out the Mets for 13 innings. 13 and two-thirds innings. So he pitches 13 innings. Mar- Juan Marichal, not a big guy at all, comes out for the 14th, gets the first oh. couple outs, and then Tommy Agee hits uh, hits a home run, and the Mets win 1-0 in 14 innings. Marichal, and- the pitch A.G. hit to win the game was Marischal's 151st pitch of the night. Yeah.
0: So, think about that; <laughs> they'd bring him up on criminal charges today. Somebody. Oh, absolutely. He do would. He would.
3: He would do, he would mean, do hard time for that. So.
0: He would do hard time. So listen, time, now, you're, you know not, you're a really <laughs>
3: knowledgeable Met guy, Mike. Let me ask you this: How many complete <laughs> games do you think the 69 Mets had?
0: Oh, uh, you know what? I don't, and I won't even look at Baseball Reference in front of me. So at 162 games. I would say, let's say, you know, 60 or 70. I would say would be complete. Is am I in the ballpark without looking that well, up? Well, you're
3: not bad. You're, you were. And, and bear in mind, last year, I believe Noah Noah Syndergaard led the Mets with two.
0: With two, right? Right. And that was there
3: the most, and by any Mets starter since Dylan G. Two. Right. The the 69 Mets had 51 complete games.
0: Wow. So I wasn't and and 16 shutouts. I wasn't looking at yeah. In this day and age you can cheat Look at baseball reference. I I wasn't at that. You know, I think that what's good about this celebration is that there's different and I was on Twitter the other day and there was a a a talk about different generations of Mets fans. There's your generation, baby boomers, then you had those who came around maybe right after 77, 78 into the 80s and then you have the 90s crew. And now you have a new age of Mets fans. Maybe you call it like the seven-line age of Mets fans. But mm-hmm. uh, what I'm hoping is that books like this, and I know there are some other books coming out as well about 69, Art Shamsky, and, and everyone's given their own take, will bring a better appreciation and understanding for that season because I think because of 86 and maybe some of the recent years, the 90s, the Subway Series, the, you know, what's been going on, fans are a little bit more myopic about today's game that maybe 69 hasn't been given it to do over the last 25 30 years that maybe it deserved. Thoughts on that?
3: I I would completely agree. I mean even when when City Field opened, you saw you saw very little in the way of um of history, you know, or artifacts, photos, anything about the the um, the myths of this era and I think I think they it would be wonderful if this fiftieth anniversary season helped especially newer generations of fans appreciate the the wonder of what happened. I mean this was the season that changed everything again this was a team that was you know not just bad, they were historically bad. They were the worst team in the history of baseball when they started, but they were filling the void left behind by the Dodgers and Giants bolting for the coast. And, you know, and they became the sort of lovable losers. But Gil Hodges came in and changed that culture. You know, lovable losing was not okay anymore. And and bit by bit, in 68 they took some steps forward, and then came 69. And, and they were, again, you know, the Yankees are – you know, the Yankees are the fabled Yankees. We understand that. But in 1969, what what Met fans need to know is that the Mets were the greatest show in baseball. The Mets outdrew every other team in baseball by about 350,000 fans. They drew almost 2.2 million fans to Shea Stadium, which was more than double what the Yankee attendance was. This is what they became this phenomenon. I mean, they were almost like, you know, Howie Rose told me it was every night at the ballpark was like Woodstock before Woodstock. It was a big party. It was, people couldn't believe what was going on. Look at what the New York Mets are doing. Look what they've turned into. And it really was, uh, it really was a paradigm changer and a history changer for the entire franchise.
0: Uh, to wrap up, um, you know, obviously they could go to your website wingcoffeeauthor.com at W R underscore coffee on Twitter. You also have an audiobook coming out which uh has a special guest as the uh voice of you, of the audiobook, so why don't you give the listeners an idea of that? You know, anything else you got coming up as uh you lead into the 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 spring and summer of the sixty nine celebration.
3: Yeah, sure. Well uh the narrator of uh they said it couldn't be done is um a gentleman named Gary Cohen and I Gary I interviewed Gary for the book and he was he was 11 years old in 69 and had wonderful memories to share and his uh, his knowledge of the Mets then and now is encyclopedic to say the least but Gary um I sent Gary an early copy of the book and uh he read it and told me that he just loved it and then I said, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna ask him a question. You can't hurt, you know. If you don't if you don't ask, you never know what'll happen. So I asked him if he would consider reading the audio book, and he said I'd be honored to. And so Gary Cohen tells reads all 95,000 words of they said it couldn't be done, on uh, the Penguin Random House uh, audio book. That's uh, Available by download on um, Audible. I think on, on Amazon you can actually get it for practically nothing if you sign up for Audible. But to hear Gary tell the story with his iconic voice of this just most historic of Met seasons is, um, I mean, I got, I got goosebumps listening to him. He was He was that great.
0: Well, this is uh, a great book. Um, it's a great uh, time to uh, celebrate the 69 Mets, 50 seasons in. Thank you so much. You were very generous with your time. I told you at the beginning, 15 minutes, and we're 30 minutes plus. So hopefully the fans enjoyed it. I know whether you live during it or you're you're learning about it for the first time, it's a great story. So uh, let's catch up again, and thank you so much for your time today.
3: Thanks for having me on, Mike. It was, really my, it was my pleasure to talk to you.
0: Anytime. That's Wayne Coffee. You can check out Wayne on Twitter at WR underscore coffee and WayneCoffeeAuthor.com. Let's take a quick break, wrap up final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Hey Mets fans, I'm gonna let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmerizedOnline.com. Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns,
1: and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled, all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today.
0: It's great stuff from Wayne Coffey. It's an interesting book. I think every one of the books this year, and I've said this before, whether it be the Art Shamsky book, the Wayne Coffey book, I think they each give you a different perspective on the 69 season. And I think it's important as you know Mets fans who listen to this, who may be from a different generation, whether it be the 90s, uh, you grew up watching those teams, or you're much younger, and 2015 is like your year, uh, I think all of this – you know, plays into completing yourself as a really good fan, a student of the team, and you could get different takes from different participants. You know, historian like Coffee going back, who was around as a young kid back then, uh, Shamsky who played it, and then our buddy Rich Catino, who will have something later this summer when the actual celebration happens at City Field, as he gives you a completely different take uh, through his eyes as well. So good stuff. Uh, listen, Season's off to a fun start. This looks like it's going to be a fun Mets team. A lot of energy. I know we saw that through the first 12 games last year, and then things change, but there's a lot of enthusiasm here. I know a lot of that is on the tails of Pete Alonzo. And sometimes a young star, and if Alonzo lives up to what we've seen through spring training and through the first couple of weeks of the regular season, if he lives up to this and becomes kind of the, the heir apparent to what right, would have provided you in in, in in a lot of ways if he had stayed healthy. Uh, you really don't miss Cespedes, and and Cespedes becomes a you know non factor because he should be a non factor due to his injury. But if he comes back, you're not really sitting around waiting for him. He's a luxury. He's a guy that you know he's a bat that you acquire at some point down the road. And Alonso provides you the right handed pop that you need. I still think they need another right handed bat at some point. But, you know, that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, I do think they should continue to monitor Kimbrell and Keichel. And uh, like I said, uh, neither one of those guys are uh, guys that I'd spend, overspend on, on multi-year deals. But if they're just looking for this year and they want to do a pillow contract, you can't do much worse than those two guys. They're just sitting out there, and you may actually be able to steal them away from one of your NLEs competitors who right now, with the way the bullpens are, and maybe that plays into what we've seen through the first, You know, week and a half with the Marlins and the Nats, and how bad the Nats bullpen is. Maybe the Mets offense looks a little bit better, but I'd have to say some of this has to do with the fact that the Mets have a really good diversified offense that you know hits much better contact despite the strikeouts, goes the other way, and uh, and seems to have a different energy level than we've seen with the all or nothing offenses over the last. Two or three years. So anyway, great stuff. Wanna thank Wayne Coffee for joining us today. Of course, check out the book. They said it couldn't be done. The 69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history. Of course, I want to thank the good folks over at online.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you can get the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and your week. We'll be back with more Talking Mets podcast next week.